Hello and welcome to the Muni Oral History Project, where we explore the stories and rich history of the Springfield Municipal Opera over the past 60 years. Stories from the people who have built, experienced, and performed what we'd like to refer to as Muni Magic. Sit back and relax and listen to these tales of Broadway under the stars. Well, here we have Ada Lynn Shrewsbury, who has been around with Muni since pretty much the reemergence of Muni in the 60s. Were you involved in um, the first go around in the 50s, Ada Lynn, or were you more involved in the reemergence? I was much more involved. I lived, lived out there quite literally with my husband and family during the early years. Now, the preceding years, I think we attended a number of the operettas, but I wasn't phys physically a participant in them at that time, only an audience member. Okay. Well, I am so excited to mm -hmm. hear uh, about your experiences at Muni and um, sort of that rich history that Muni has. And I know you've prepared some uh, notes and some stories for us, so we certainly want you to be able to share those and then... Uh, we might uh, butt in here every now and then with a question or two, okay? So please, I would welcome that. Absolutely. So if you wanted to to start, uh, you know how how it came to be that you and your husband had such a strong involvement in this. I mean, uh, even moving to this area, I knew the name Tom Shrewsbury and I knew Adeline Shrewsbury right away when I got involved in Muni because of the uh, legacy that you have with this organization. It's so great to get to talk to you about that. So please go ahead and, and uh, then I'm sure we'll have some questions for you as we go along. All right, I will welcome those. Uh, I view this in my mind is the history of the Muni Opera by providing both the memory of and the save records of me, Ada Lynn Shrewsbury, and I am the widow of Tom Shrewsbury. He passed away about nine years ago. He, in my mind, and I think the minds of many people in Springfield who know the history, is the man who single-handedly, with lots of help, but with his leadership, his guidance, his wisdom, he saved the Muni from extinction. And if I am correct, the original Muni, uh, which was devoted almost exclusively to operettas, um, was spelled M-U-N-Y. And when we revived it, it was M-U-N-I. I don't remember why they changed the spelling, but they did. Now, the original Muni was conceived by and organized and directed by E. Carl Lundgren, and he was a music person. It started as an all-volunteer group of musical theater devotees, and they performed primarily operettas. Now, Lake Springfield was opened not that many years before, and at the dedication of the new lake, uh, an interest in having a performance armed arts group out there was expressed. And some of the people who later became involved in the first Muni and the second one were physically present, and they took note of that desire on the part of the uh, city fathers to indeed have a performing art groups out there. 
Now, for those who know about Lake Springfield, the land on the lake is not owned. It is leased for a certain number of years, and if all is going well, remains in the possession of the lessees. Muni's lease indicated that if there was not a performance there for three years in a row, the land would revert back to the city's ownership. Now, right there is a significant little threat hanging over the head of the people in charge of this entertainment venue. I think they didn't think about it consciously until things went began to go downhill. The first Muni had its policy, a core uh, business who, if there was a shortfall of money made that season when the bales were due, they would tap into some uh, guarantors. And it initially was an all-volunteer organization. Totally, absolutely, everybody associated with it was a volunteer. Some of those people, in fact, in their real life, were pros in their various fields. So after a while, some of these volunteers began to make noises about being paid. And they approached the right people, and they demanded that they be paid. And after a while, some of them indeed were paid. Well, needless to say, the word got out to the rest of the volunteers that some folks were being paid. So the more the word got out, the more volunteers who began to demand that they be paid as well. So they were. So at the end of the season, the money that was made was not sufficient to pay all of the bills and to pay the people who were then demanding to be paid. And then, of course, the next year or the next two years, it was very hard to get any guarantors from both individuals and businesses in the city until there were no guarantors. And that's when the original Muni, spelled M-U-N-Y, folded. Now, towards the end of that time when the original Muni was struggling, Millican University, which has a very significant theatrical arts department, music and theatrical arts department, began to come over in the summer and they would put on a production, which was to the benefit of the old Muni, but also it was a benefit to the Millican students to have that experience of playing to a live audience uh, who was paying money to get the tickets to see the Muni, per I mean the Millican people perform. But after a couple of years, the Millican group stopped performing because while they put on quality productions, the revenue from the box office just simply was not enough for them to continue and to pay their bills. Then there was an organization called Tent at the Lake who took up residence on the east end of the parking lot at the Muni site. They did not use our performing audience and stage and orchestra pit. They were, in fact, in a tent in the parking lot. 
and they put on straight plays, not uh, musicals. And they were very, very talented people. Um, And they did a show once where they required, as part of the cast, a small, white, furry dog. And the people running the show happened to know that Tom and I had a small, white, furry poodle named Pierre. And Pierre, at that time, was currently enrolled in a dog obedience school. So for him to be in their tent at the lake production, he had to give up school to go on the stage. Now, I immediately offered to have him groomed and trimmed in a typical poodle cut, whereupon the director almost had a seizure, and he says, oh, no, 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 whatever you do, don't do that, just leave him (laughs) as he was, which was kind of furry and fluffy, which we frequently left him that way because he he thought he was cute. Well, the reason for that was there was a line in the show that – referred to a man coming in to visit this lady in her home and he remarks oh you left your mop out whereupon she indignantly replies that's not a mop that's my dog well that was Pierre so he had to be fluffy well they were good enough that they sent someone to pick him up every night at our home and then they delivered him home again after the show so we didn't have to go to the trouble to drive out there and take him and pick him up and so forth they even provided a dog sitter during the performance of the show when he was not on stage there was a lady whose name was Betty Ward who happened to be a very dear friend of ours and knew Pierre so I'm sure she kept him well under her control so here they were doing all the labor and our dog got to appear on stage (laughs) which is one of my favorite stories in my life now by this time the original muni opera site was in deplorable condition lightning had struck the stage and it had burned at least twice the original seats were wooden bleachers or benches and weather had taken its toll on the benches, and there were weeds growing between the benches, some of which were tree size. And just generally everything in the place was run down, bedraggled, and really in desperate need of lots of work. And um, really the only true quality, valuable thing left remaining at the stage site was the natural concrete orchestra pit. That was the only usable thing. Now, the ground out at at Muni is a natural bowl of land. So from the top of the hill where you come in, you go downhill ever so gradually, and the stage is at the lower portion of this natural bowl of ground, and and the orchestra pit is right in front of that. Well, As I said, the uh, site was a mess and much work was going to have to be done. Now, people all over town were saying, the theater community, why don't they do something about it? Meaning, save the Muni. So Tom came home one night and he quoted that line to me. He walked in the door and I could see he was shall we say, stressed and worried and just deep in thought. And he said, all over town, they're saying, why don't 
they do something about it. In other words, save Muni. And then he turned to me and with a very serious and touching expression on his face, he said, I am beginning to think they is me. And it was, and he did. So the first thing he did was go to the city council because there was a very limited time left where if they didn't produce a show on the site, the land would have reverted back to the city, and I doubt if they would have ever given it up again. But Tom was the kind of person with great insight and creativity of thought and a determination, and he didn't mind working hard, so he did. He approached Shirley White and Bob Lubin, both of whom had been involved in the Muni before and were public servants and well-known in the community and hardworking and reliable people. And he asked them if the two of them would mount a fundraising drive of at least $20,000 to help Muni return to the site. And they agreed to do so. And they were wonderful. And they consulted with him then and in the years to come and I think they were subsequently on the board of directors. They were truly wonderful. So they approached, Tom approached the city council and asked them to give them a one-year trial balloon performance to hold off going back to the lake by having it in the Lou Hahn Memorial Band Shell in Douglas Park. And the show was Bye Bye Birdie. Now bear in mind, Doug Hahn, Lou Hahn's son, is a brilliant musician, and we had already met Doug and thought a lot of him. So it was particularly an honor to attempt to perform in his father's memorial band shell. So we got permission from the Park District to use the Lou Hahn Memorial Band Shell and put on a show, and the show was Bye Bye Birdie. And it was a big success. Fred Wassel directed it, and a young man played Bertie, and his name was Ron Mangold. And I was very, very sorry to read this past summer in the newspaper that Mr. Mangold has since passed away. But he was very talented and a very charming young man. As a side note, there was an empty store directly across the street from Douglas Park to the west, I think it had been a grocery store, and it was closed and obviously vacant. Well, Tom, not having a shy bone in his body and having always the forethought to see the possibilities of things, tracked down the name of the owner and made a call on him and implored the gentleman to please let us use that empty grocery store for the run of the show of Birdie in the park and store things like set pieces and microphones and, you know, the sound system and the lighting equipment and some of the costumes and so forth. So the very, very nice gentleman agreed to do so for the run of the show and for a couple of weeks of rehearsal, asking only that we return the key to the building at the end of the run 
And Tom said, well, of course he would return the key. So he returned it with, of course, great thanks to the gentleman for letting us use it. And it really was a wonderful, wonderful gift of of kindness because the Luhan Memorial Bandshell really doesn't have any outbuildings to store anything and it has only the most minimal little backstage area. So that building was worth its weight in gold during that time. Now, back at the Muni site, it was in awful condition, with the exception of the orchestra pit. So Tom, again, how he came up with these ideas, I'll never know. He contacted what was then a Navy SEAL base, right near the City Water, Light, and Power Company, across the bridge from the CWLP uh, and slightly to the east. And he asked for an appointment with a commendator who was in charge there. And he asked the gentleman when he met with him if cleaning up areas after serious weather issues and damage and helping to rebuild might fall under the description of the work his men would be doing while they were there in Springfield. And if so, could they please come over and help with the site, help to clean it up, help to rebuild it, because he thought that perhaps that might be similar to what they were doing anyway. And by gosh, the commander agreed to it. And they did come, and they worked like dogs. Bless their hearts. And a number of local theater lovers also came and helped with the cleanup. I remember pulling weeds by the bucket load. I remember planting new trees, uh, creating new flower beds, edging them, that sort of thing. A new stage was constructed. And then it occurred to Tom that they lacked buildings on either side of the stage for storage buildings and dressing rooms. I mean, okay, now they had the stage, they had the orchestra pit, and they had rebuilt uh, new bleachers for seating. So he knew a gentleman named Joe Genesi, who owned and ran a shipping company with trucks and trailers. So Tom went with, met with Mr. Genesi and told him the story, and he inquired of Mr. Genesi if he ever had any trailers that were not in use all the time, and if so, if we might borrow two of them just during the run of these two shows that were going to be the opening season's first shows, so that we would have a building on each side, in this case a trailer, on each side of the stage. So they placed one on stage left to house the men's and women's dressing rooms, and they put up a divider wall, temporary divider wall. And in the middle between the men's and dressings areas, they built this long plank of wood to be the makeup table, and then they managed to obtain a very long mirror to put behind the board holding the makeup, and that's where they did the makeup and kept the makeup. Then on the other side of the stage, uh, which would have been stage right, they stored the sets that they were constructing and the sound equipment and the lighting equipment. And, of course, they could lock the trailers. So they had a bit of security knowing that they could have, you know, put this material, various and sundry things, in these two trailers. 
So a new board of directors was created and selected and approved, and the first thing the theater agreed as an absolute dictate was that they would pay cash for everything. They would incur no debts, and they would have no guarantors. Also, the new Muni was to maintain a one-year savings account for the start of the next year. So they weren't starting broke the next year. They had a certain amount set aside. I think it was $1,000. I'm not sure of that. And then also the board of managers was to be a revolving board so that no cliques would be created to bring undue influence on something that a clique might wish to have happen or not happen. So there would be no cliques, a revolving board, a savings account set out for the start of next year, and no debts at the end of the season. Now, under the heading of an interesting uh, interesting story, one night before the Muni was to open, there was a knock on our door on a Sunday evening, and this man appeared at the door, and he expressed an interest, uh, an interest in helping with the Muni. He knew what was happening, and he wanted to help. And he told us that he and his family lived in a mobile home. And he wondered if it wouldn't be a good idea, now that we were improving the site and we had things of value out there, he wondered if it wouldn't be a good idea if he moved his mobile home to the back of the stage area off towards the east a little bit so that there was someone physically present on the site at all time. And when you think about it, prior to that, there was never anybody there at night, and there was rarely anybody there during the day. It was mostly evening when we would have rehearsals, when we would have performances, when we would work. People would get off work and come out and help build the sets and work on the costumes and all that. So his idea just lit a, a light bulb in Tom's eye, and he said, I think that's a great idea. And in addition, it proved to be a great idea for another reason, that when deliveries were made out of the site during the workday when most of us were at work, he or a member of his family would be there to unlock that gate that protected the backstage area. They could unlock it, let them bring in a shipment of lumber, and then sign the receipt that it had been received. Otherwise, somebody would have had to leave whatever they were doing to go out there and wait for delivery people. So the gentleman's name was Dietz Cornelius, and we all came to love Mr. Cornelius. He was a very personable and warm gentleman, and he loved to write, too. So I think he wrote many a story about Muni. And um, after the show started... He also established a backstage canteen for the cast and crew to obtain some refreshments backstage without having to run around and go up on the hill to the refreshment stand on the hill. So in the evening when we would get there for either dress rehearsals or, or production nights, we could hear, smell the popcorn popping and the coffee brewing, and he had a little cooler for soft drinks. And I think he finally progressed to even having fresh cooked hot dogs, if I recall correctly. 
I believe he made his living as a postman. Don't hold me to that, but I believe he was a postal carrier. And he and his wife and children were, were big helps to us. They really were. Now, the first season of Muni, back at the restored site, we produced Music Man and South Pacific. One of the things that made that particular production of Music Man, and we did it at least two more times, I know because I was in all three of them, He, we, I was a production coordinator, and that meant I had to do all the grunt work, get things that needed to be picked up and so forth. Like, for instance, we found we didn't have any music stands. So I had a young baby at that time, and I had to go to Springfield High School, who's a music director offered to loan us their metal music stands to use during the show so that the orchestra people had a place to put their music. So I had a small car and a baby in an infant seat, and I managed to cram a whole bunch of music stands into the car and get them out to the site and bless Springfield High School for doing that. But another idea that somebody came up with was because there was no fence around the outside, around the audience, just only backstage was there a fence for security. But the side and all the way around the audience, there was no fence. So I think it was Tom that came up with the bright idea of actually having a Wells Fargo wagon. So I got a gentleman who could uh, control a horse and wagon to donate his services and then we borrowed a horse from Judge Harlington Woods and his wife, and we got a small little wagon that we could borrow. Then I arranged on the road back of the Muni Opera site, there are a number of farms down that road, and I knocked on doors until I found somebody with a barn who agreed to house the horse during the run of the production. So every night, during the performance and dress rehearsal, the gentleman who was the driver and I would walk down to the barn where the horse was stabled, and he would get the barn out, and he'd have him on a leash, and we'd walk back down the country road, and many a time I got to ride bareback on the horse. Me, who knew very little about horseback riding, I nevertheless rode the horse bareback. And then when he got to the top of the hill, we were still in the dark by then, he would hitch up the horse to the wagon, and at the right time in the show, the light man would turn the light over, and the spotlight would pick up the gentleman on his seat in the wagon, and he would tip the horse with reins, and off the horse would take, and he would trot down the side of the audience the Wells, and while on stage they're singing the Wells Fargo wagon is a coming and the spotlight kept on him until he got backstage, whereupon the driver of the wagon could take him up a wide ramp that is at the back of the stage, and then he brought him on through the wings, and he drove the wagon across the stage under the spotlights then on the stage. And the choir is singing about the Wells Fargo wagon being here. And it really was quite spectacular. People talked about it for ages after that, but they could never do it again once they put a fence around the property up on the hill. But that that was sort of a one-of-a-kind moment. And uh, then another thing that happened that was kind of 
exceptional on South Pacific, which was the second show they did that first year. I believe I am correct that Sandy Wheeler was the leading lady in that show. And on dress rehearsal night, we had an unusually cold snap for summer. I mean, it was chilly to the bone. And as production coordinator, I was sitting on the wall of the um, orchestra pit wearing my winter jacket with the hood up. And about midway through the show, I remember reaching in my pocket and taking my mittens out and putting them on, too, because it was that chilly. Now, bear in mind, the leading lady has to wash that man right out of her hair. So they had erected this little structure on the stage, which had water in it. And I can't remember whether she was wearing a swimming suit or shorts and a top. But anyway, she went into the building singing, I'm going to wash that man right out of my hair. And she's in there for a few minutes while the orchestra plays. And she comes out and she is sopping wet. Hair, The water is dripping off her hair, her clothing, her shoes. And I sat there on the wall of the orchestra pit with my mouth hanging open thinking, why are her teeth not chattering? She has to be freezing. But she did it. And I guess that falls under the heading of being a pro and rising to the occasion. Fortunately, it was much warmer the next night on opening night. Heaven help her. <laughs> the weather did change. And we did uh, a production of Showboat one year. And we were honored and blessed to have the star of the original Broadway show of Showboat agree to appear in our production. I believe that Mr. War William Warfield at that time was living in Champaign. And I don't know to a certainty, but I think he did it free gratis. And on the day when he first arrived in Springfield, I think it was a day or two before dress rehearsal, of course, he knew all the lines and all the music, so he didn't need a lot of rehearsal like the rest of the folks did. But anyway, he went into a store, and there was a young lady working at the cash register there who just happened to have been cast in the show. And so when Mr. Warfield walked up to her counter where she was a cashier and appeared in front of her, needless to say, she was thrilled and excited, and she gushed out to Mr. Warfield that she was in the chorus of the show that he was to be in, and she was so excited to meet him and to welcome him to town. Now, he could have been, you know, abrupt and just brushed her off. But he didn't. He was sweet as can be to her. He chatted with her. He took a few moments and chatted with her. And as he left to go on about his business, he told her he was looking forward to working with her. Can you imagine a nicer way to put that for him to work with her? It's stories like that that are part and parcel of having been active in shows for a long, long time. And I'm sure he made her day, probably her week. So over the years, the shows have been many and varied. We've repeated some because we had requests to do them again. As I said, I know we did Music Man at least three times because I was a Del Sart lady every three, uh, all three times. And um, the, at, the, at 25th anniversary, they had a party 
25 years of being back in business, and Tom was the MC. It was at a hotel downtown during the winter. They didn't do it, do it during the summer. They did it in the winter. So Tom and Betty Ward were their uh, their MCs, and their guest star was Marianne Chalice, and she donated her normal professional fee to the Muni, which we thought was very, very honorable of her to do. And then, of course, now enough more time has passed. We've also reached another landmark, and they had a 50th anniversary party. And again, it was held in the winter at a local ballroom. And then it's occurred to me over the years, I think there have been a number of marriages that all occurred when the husband and wife met each other at Muni and subsequently the romance developed into marriage. And off the top of my head, the only one I can pull to mind is Don and Linda Snyder, but I'm pretty sure there are several more. And, of course, I met Tom at the old theater guild on Lawrence Avenue. So theater and its history and its stories are many and charming and delightful, and a lot of them lead to long-term commitments as far as people that you make friends with and you fall in love with. So that's kind of my story. Have you got any questions? So, Ada Lynn, you said you were a Delsart lady in several of the productions of Music Man. Have What else have you done on stage besides? Well, I directed Hans Christian Andersen. Uh, I did a number of leads and, and prominent parts at the old theater guild. But once we moved out to the Muni site, as I said, I had a brand new baby, my first child, Uh, That first year we were back at the site, and then I subsequently had another child, so um, that kept me pretty busy, but the children did quite literally grow up on the grounds of the Muni because we all, all of us were working out there all the time. So I would frequently be a stage manager, I would frequently uh, build and paint sets, uh, I would uh, help with costumes and help with people changing. I really enjoyed being uh, a stage manager. And as I say, I directed Hans Christian Andersen. And I was in another a number of other uh, shows as well. But I just directed the one show. Now, I did direct some shows at the Theater Guild. Uh, but by that time, my hands were pretty full, what with two children and a job. So... Um, I kind of cut back on on my theater activities then. But I did, by that time, have an extensive background. So if I was chairing the makeup department or things like that, stage managing, I did know what I was doing. And I enjoyed every minute of it. Fortunately, my mother lived here, so she could babysit for me in the evenings. Um, so, you know, I, I'm in the same situation as you are now because I have a, a little one. And, and so mother-in-law is helping out immensely when it comes to the babysitting aspects oh, and, and being, thank, thank God for mothers and grandmothers. That's, that is right. That is right. Um, but I am so fascinated that, uh, your experience with Muni truly started because of a dog. 
uh, it's kind of incredible to to think about <laughs> that you you got involved in that way and um, left such an indelible mark on the organization. Uh, and so it just kind of can you speak to what it is about Muni as an organization that continue to uh, for you and Tom to want to be involved and want to volunteer so much of your time? Well, to me, the theater community is a family. I really believe that. I sense that. And you get the feeling that if you were ever in need and needed help, they would be there for you in the same way that a good family would. So that closeness, that caring is just so important and and so uplifting. And the pride you feel when this person that you've known for several years or worked alongside, say, painting scenery, suddenly gets the lead in the next show, you're as pumped up as they are. You feel so good for them. And, And when somebody directs a show and you can see the skill that they have gleaned over the years working on the periphery of a production, they've been listening. They've been paying attention all the time. And so when they come to the point where they are directing, they literally know what they're talking about staging-wise. They know that their people have to move on stage, that they have to make gestures and head movement and body language that's appropriate to the character and they help the actors by taking them aside during scenes and saying hey the next time you do that I want you to put your hand on the shoulder of the person next to you it's little nuances like that that can make a really good show and you don't just you're not just born with that knowledge you learn it by observing so the more you can do, the more you can work on a show, the more you learn. So with every succeeding year, these people become more skilled in a variety of ways, not just performing necessarily, directing, choreographing. And, of course, to be a vocal music, um, um, a vocal director or a choreographer, you, of course, have to have training in those two field of arts. But uh, you can bring a lot of other nuances to that ballet, to that tap number, when you've watched theater in general and see that it isn't just your feet that's involved. It's your whole upper body and your arms and your gestures and, and the looks that are exchanged between people on the stage. They can speak volumes. That's acting. Absolutely. And, and it's, uh, it's also your heart in a way. I mean, it's, uh, it's such a, a lot of the friends that we know and love in Springfield are, are from this organization directly. And so that's something that's just been um, an ongoing thought in my mind as we've begun this project and capturing these stories are also the untold amount of friendships that have blossomed, oh, yes. whether it be on stage or off. Oh, and another group that I want to give credit to, because over the year, I have been a reader at Muni Opera Auditions almost from the beginning. So I read with the people that try out. We usually have two men and two women, and we alternate uh, taking turns reading with the people who are auditioning. And over the years, we have noticed and remarked the improvement in the quality of the auditions of young people 
teenagers. And that's because they started having theater departments in high schools. And my goodness, what a difference it's made. Because they didn't come from just watching cartoons on TV and thinking, hey, gee, I'd like to sing and dance and be on the stage. They've had training at Glenwood High School, Springfield High School, Sacred Heart Griffin. I don't know if the Southeast has a program or not, or Lamphere. But, oh, my gosh, when we started seeing those young people arrive, and when they walked up to audition, their chins were up, their shoulders were back, they assumed a comfortable standing position, and they looked at the pianist, nodded their head for them to commence, and they gave an audition that was worthy of an adult professional. And they learned it in school. And we noticed, and we are intensely grateful to those teachers who made that happen. And that didn't start right away. That's a relatively new phenomena that's going on in our school system. And then, of course, programs like uh, the PAVE camp, P-A-V-E, at the Hoagland. And those are two-week camps every summer. And those kids have a ball. Both of my Mm -hmm. grandchildren went to those camps. They didn't have them when my kids were little, but they have them now. You know, I think uh, you mentioned children so much, and I think that's a great segue into Jacob's question because he wants to talk about a boy who would never grow old. So Jacob has a question for you. I know know Tom directed a number of shows, but I think one that's worth mentioning because of how landmark it was – for this organization was Peter Pan. Oh, yes. The first time they had flying out there, uh, people and I know, were just well, melting in their seats. And am I right that we were the first outdoor yes. theater in the yes. country, or probably yes. period, to, before even the St. Louis Muni, who's professional, we were the first yes. to do Peter Pan. And, and you know what the challenge was? We had no roof on the stage. Mm-hmm. They were used to mounting that opera apparatus on a roof, a ceiling. Yeah. So they had to figure a different way to do it. And they had to do it in a safe manner because at one point, Peter flies over and lands on the mantle mm-hmm. in the bedroom of the kid's uh, bedroom. And believe me, that is no mean task. It yeah. is a challenge. And so we and we used Flying by Foy, right? The company that yes. flew Mary Martin. Yes. Yep. Yes. Yep. So yep. we sure did. We absolutely did. And uh, oh, what an exciting time that was! And we had some of the best uh, girls to do the part of Peter. And you know, it's up until just recently, I saw what did I, did I see this? on TV or at Muni, a boy playing the part. Well, yeah, yeah, we just did, we did just did yeah, Peter Pan last year, last right. year in 2019, and for the first time we had a, a man, a boy playing Peter Pan. Okay, all I can say, because I flew once, all I can say is they must have changed the design of the harness that holds a person securely <laughs> when they fly through the air. 
Yeah. And I, it I think it's doable that <laughs> yeah. they that they redesigned it. I, I do think yeah. that's probably reasonable that they did resign yeah. it. But there was a good and valid reason all those years why it was done by girls. Yeah. Well, very uh, magical show. And oh, it is. <laughs> and and then uh, what was the show where we had things available for sale? At the uh, up on the hill, and the children in the audience could do things at the end of the show. I don't remember whether they were little flashlight type things or or rattles or what, but oh, did they get a toot out of being a part of the show at the end? So if you can do things like that to get people involved, uh, what a joy it is. And before we wrap this up, the last thing I want to talk about is the concession stand that's named after Tom. Well, uh, they built a new concession stand. Mm -hmm. They also built a new uh, box office for selling the tickets. And they named that building after Alice Payne, who had been in charge of the box office, I think, almost from the time that we reopened. Uh, she made that her responsibility to have a staff of people, and and we also had a policeman who was there at the end of the show and escorted the person who had the bag with the money and the checks and so forth to uh, a nearby bank depository. And then uh, when the uh, concession stand was rebuilt, they put names on the building, and it is the Shrewsbury concession stand. He had no idea this was coming, and he was quite dumbfounded. So I remember a few years ago when they um, built the Lundgren Rubley building, how they brought out Gene Rubley and did a big presentation ceremony. Did they do something like that for Tom when they did the concession stand? Yes, on stage. Yep. And I'm sure he was, like, speechless. Yes. Well, Tom was seldom speechless, but uh, <laughs> I'm sure he was quite dumbfounded, just truly dumbfounded. Yeah. And I am so glad they had that plaque on the back of the light booth now that pays yes. tribute yes. to some of the people who have made a world of difference in the history of Muni, quite literally. Uh, Tom would probably kick me in the backside if he was present for saying this, but Muni would not be there if Tom Shrewsbury had not taken over. He was the man with the guts and the determination and the insight to know where to go get help, how to get help. You know, I have learned this uh, for some time in my life. People don't know what you want and need until you open your mouth and tell them. But there are an awful lot of people in this world who are incapable of doing that. They just cannot ask for help. But if you do, it's amazing how often the answer will be yes. I'll be glad to help. Absolutely. You know, and I just have to say uh, thank you for being willing to chat with us today and, and to tell us some of your story. This is a, a really fun project. And I think I'm going to get to learn a lot of these stories that helped build this wonderful organization. And you are not the 
first or only person I've seen, heard uh, tell that uh, Tom was so integral to the success of the Muni and to bringing back the Muni uh, and to what we have today. We're very grateful for your entire family's contribution into that. So thank you so much well, for it, chatting it, with it us Well, it enriched today. our lives. There's no doubt about it. But he was a truly exceptional man. He didn't have a shy bone in his body. He was good to the soul of his being. He was just simply a good man, and he was highly intelligent, and he wasn't too bashful to reach out and say, this can mean so much to the community. Can I count on you for help? Is is there something you can do? And, Jacob, you know, in this community, the fact that there is a strong theater presence is very significant to the community when new businesses are contemplating moving into a town. That's one of the things they look around and observe. Is there entertainment here for my employees? How are the schools? Those kinds of things are very, very important when businesses think about locating in a town. And we were aware of that. We had heard that before. So, it, 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 you know, we can just be proud in so many ways, not just the joy we derive from being a part of it and the joy the audience derives from being uh, the viewer enjoying it, but we're literally helping our community. Absolutely. And that's pretty significant. Yes, it is. Thank you so much again. And uh, we, it, it's just so, so remarkable to be able to talk to you today. So I really appreciate it. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you much, Lee. Thank you for listening to the Muni Oral History Project. This is an ongoing effort to capture the memories and stories of the Springfield Municipal Opera. If you have pictures, videos, or stories you'd like to contribute to this effort, please email history at themuni.org. Your hosts have been Jacob Potty and Craig McFarland. Production assistance by Vanessa Ferguson and Jeremy Geckner. Special thank you to the Muni Board of Managers and the Muni Board of Trustees for their support in this effort. And thank you to all the Muni family who continue to help us create magic every summer.